Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Each of our episodes so far has contained an intimate conversation between directors discussing their professional craft. But while all of the episodes up to this point have covered recently released films, this episode will break from that trend and represent a new chapter for this podcast. Today's episode comes from the archives of our DGA Visual History Program, which was founded in the year 2000 and contains more than 170 in-depth and long-form interviews with directors and their team members discussing their careers and creative processes in film, television, and other media. And like all of our current Q&As, these interviews are conducted by a fellow member who understands the challenges of creating compelling visual stories, which allows for revealing conversations you cannot find anywhere else. Our inaugural episode features highlights from directing legend Milos Forman. As one of the most important directors of the Czech New Wave in the 1960s and the American Revolution in filmmaking in the 1970s, Mr. Foreman's films have reflected his worldview that was shaped by growing up under the repressive communist regime that ruled Czechoslovakia after the Second World War. His 1965 feature film, The Fireman's Ball, was on the surface a lighthearted farce about a rural town festival gone comically awry, but also functioned as a bitter satire that mocked the Soviet leadership in his home country. Despite being nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film, the communist government banned the film and Mr. Foreman was forced to flee to the West to continue his directing career. His accomplishments since coming to the United States include winning two Academy Awards and two DGA Awards for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975 and Amadeus in 1984. And the DGA honored Mr. Foreman with the award for Lifetime Achievement in Feature Film in 2011. Some of his other prominent films include the musical Hair, Taking Off, Man on the Moon, and The People vs. Larry Flint. Please enjoy listening to highlights of the Visual History Program interview with Milos Forman, conducted by his friend and fellow director, Daniel Algrant. You were born in what? In a little, in a little town, not really a little town. I was born on February 32 in Chaslav, which is a tiny small town in the middle of then Czechoslovakia. Czech Republic. Right. Yeah. right. And, and what, what were your memories of those early years when you first? Uh... Well, when it comes to the, <laughs> when it comes to the movies, you know. So the, f- the first movie I ever saw was uh, Snow White, and I was five years old. It was amazing. It was magical, and I was fascinated by that. So you didn't know about movie directing? Or oh, no, nothing. Not. I, as a matter of fact, I didn't see any movies until I was 13. Because, uh, you know, the war started. My Both my parents uh, were taken in the concentration camps, you know, and nobody would give me money during the war to go and see Nazi propaganda movies. So uh, the next movies I saw was uh, after the war. And what were those, do you remember? Those were, I remember one was... On the square, when the, when the day went dark, it was a Russian war movie. And it was it was powerful, especially the surroundings. And then, of course, you know, uh, the, you know, liberated country, and all the movies from all over the world were coming. You know, and that was uh, I was going crazy about 
American silent comedy. Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Laurel and Hardy, you know, all this, I was absolutely crazy about them. And that was, we, but you weren't yet, were you already in, in film school at Prague by then? Or? No, 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 this was, I was 13 years old oh, after the war, right. so uh, then, I, then I went through the... Know, high school, and then I wanted... Where were you living then? Sorry, where were you living then? You were still living I was living in different uh, cities with different people because my parents were gone, you know. And uh, the first taste, or... <laughs> this is so ridiculous, you know, but the, the desire to be a director was... This was still during the war. Uh, I was 12 years old, and my old brother... 12 years older than I was, than I am, uh, was a set designer for a small touring operetta company. And every time the group came into the town where I was at the time living, uh, he took me in the theater. And I was fascinated. I, actors, you know, they were gods for me. And he always took me backstage, you know, in the intermission or after the show, and then I see these gods, you know, I could touch them, I could smell them, you know, the makeups and everything. And suddenly I noticed the man there, and all these gods were very obedient to him. So there is somebody who has a power over my gods. So I asked my brother, who is this man? Oh, he's a director. I want to be a director. I want to have this power, you know, over stage, over actors, over, you know, the entertainment. So, um, but that, so then, you know, thanks to this experience, I uh, applied to the drama school to be a theater director and have this power. <laughs> I was not accepted. So I applied to a film school and the only play, the, uh, which had a still you know, free space for a student, was a screenwriting department. So I entered the film school, and for four years I studied screenwriting. And uh, I graduated as a screenwriter. It, and it was, uh, it was very, very interesting, because, uh, you know, to s not that you re really learn technically a lot mm -hmm. but when you have a chance to see hundreds of films to spend nights with your you know fellow students you know friends you know, in the pubs talking about movies and like that and you have professors who can inspire you so that's that's the crux that's the most important thing of school I experienced you know, that it inspired you yeah who were the professors there that were inspiring you that was very interesting because uh, you know there was a after the war communists took over the country and established this very strong ideological climb down on everything you know censorship and like that so a lot of great Czech intellectuals writers filmmakers and like that were not able to work in their professions they were just kicked out so they became teachers so we had the most wonderful brains you know intellectually uh, in the show business teaching us they didn't like to teach but it didn't matter 
because you admire their work. So they really, you know, you look the, in awe at awe, you say, in awe. Mm, yes. Towards them, and the, that's very inspiring. That's very powerful. And you can admire somebody. Was I heard Milan Kundera was teaching you maybe? Milan Kundera was. Uh, he's only three years, I think, older than I am, but he was already my teacher. Wow. Yeah, and he was wonderful. He was uh, very inspiring. Were you already hanging out with your uh, colleagues then uh, from the school? Like was Ivan Passer there then? Were those? Yes, we were hanging out very much. So there was no. Uh, animosity or rivalry because we knew, we all knew that we have to stick together. Otherwise, you know, because the, the dark forces of the communist, you know, uh, desire to control everything, you know, was uh, growing and still there. So to protect ourselves, we had to stick together, you know. In terms of the, the, the way you develop stories and script, uh, you use you the same group of people I, we worked together, three of us, uh, on all my uh, three or four, if you want count the uh, audition uh, films in, in uh, Prague, yes, yes. You know, except for the first one, Black Peter, which was based on Yara Pavush's book. The other two, uh, you know, Loves of a Blonde and Fireman's Ball, they, they were original screenplays based on um, our life experiences because, you know, Loves of a Blonde, you know, I, I, one, one day I'm walking, I'm driving, I had a car. Uh, in the middle of the night, it was like two in the morning, and suddenly I see a, a single girl walking with a suitcase. And, you know, in the middle of the night, when you see a single girl walking, just by the way she's walking, you can guess what's going on. But this girl was walking, you know, like a zombie. So that was intriguing. So I started to talk to her, and I found out uh, that uh, <laughs> she is from a town northern Bohemia, where the ratio between men and uh, women is like 1 to 17. You know, one man, 17 women. And uh, she, these girls, of course, were very, you know, anxious to get married or some to find somebody, some man. And she met somebody there who gave, you know, and she hoping that she will you know, attach him to herself, you know, slept with him, you know, made love to him. And he gave her his address to visit him in Prague, and she came to Prague to find out that the address doesn't exist. And now she was wandering there. And that started to, that's a story. That's, that could be a touching, funny story. And that's how the loves of a blonde started. And uh, the next one, Fireman's Bow was, you know, again, we, I had an idea to develop, and we started to work. But meanwhile, you know, uh, Yara Paposhek was married, and uh, Ivan had, you know, his own private life, and it was so difficult to concentrate on work in Prague. So we decided to go into the to the mountains because the work didn't go well. You know, we were struggling with the script, and you know, so we went to a sort of a resort place in the mountains and. Again, the work didn't go well, and I see a poster one day that there is a fireman's ball in Vrchlabi, small town in the mountains. So I said, let's, let, let's take a break and let's go see the fireman's ball. So we went there. <laughs> it was incredible. Since the next day, we couldn't stop talking about anything else 
but what he saw at that farm as well. So that's how, you know, and he started to write a different story, different script, and Fireman's Ball was written. Huh. And, and uh, what was the response of that film there that was... When the film was uh, you know, finished, it was, it was a funny situation because in that times, you know, I was told by the projectionist who is a friend of mine who projected the film in the Prague Castle for the communist big shots. And he told me that the president and first secretary of the party, Novotny, that he climbed the walls when he saw the film. And uh, in that times was not, it was in the 60s, you know, uh, very popular to ban the film administratively. What they were doing is that they had a film, they saw the film, they didn't like it, so they arranged a screening in some town for normal audience, but they placed their own people among the audience, and somebody after the film went on the stage and said, well, uh, comrades, you know, we saw this film, and I would like to hear your opinions. And then, you know, plenty person, you know, gets up and says, I think this is a disgrace, which is really, uh, you know, throwing mud on our effort to build a social society, to blah, 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 blah. And then they said, you see, people don't like it. Sorry, we can't show it. And they <laughs> planned to do it, the same thing with Fireman's Ball, and show it in Vrchlabi, which was the town where I shot the film, and all the extras, plus most of the firemen, the, uh, the main actors, were local firemen. And they thought, oh my God, these people will kill him because he's ridiculing them. He's ridiculing the working class, you know. So they arranged the screen there. They you know, asked me not to go for my own protection so that I'm not physically attacked, you know, by the mad crowd <laughs> and by the film. So I didn't go there, but I heard what happened. You know, film ended. I mean, so comrades, what, what do you think? And their planted man got up. I think this is a disgrace. I think this is, you know, the lowest form of uh, art. And I think this is, you know, just uh, shouldn't exist, blah, 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 blah. blah. Because it's not true, our people are not like that. And then one of the firemen who is in the film raised his hand. But I don't know, comrade, you know, I don't know, you say it's not true. It's a, you know, Joe, do you remember how this, you know, little outhouse of Frankie was burning and we couldn't, we couldn't get there because the, the, the driver was drunk and he overturned the, the, the truck. And the people started to applaud because the, the, Communist apparatchiks didn't realize that they are showing the film not to firemen, but to actors, to people <laughs> who see themselves and their children might see, and their grandchildren after they are dead might see them. They were actors, they are creators. So they protected the film, but the government banned it anyway, officially forever. <laughs> did you know how risky it was when you were making that film when you were designing I mean when you were writing it did you well you know when you are young you are stupid you don't realize the risks you don't you know you are just arrogant and uh, things that everything somehow will pass fine and like that I was yeah I was aware that you know we uh, eliminated from the script anything which could uh, 
uh, jeopardize the approval of the script right. before we shoot, right. knowing that when I will be shooting, I'll shoot what I want. You know? Right, right, right. I want to ask a few questions about your transition to coming to the United States. How, what was it like and how did it go? I was uh, invited, more or less, by Charlie Bluthorn, who was a, you know, chairman of Gulf and Western, to make a film here in the United States. So uh, I came here and uh, I started to do what I knew what to do. That means Czech film in America. So we, you know, we were trying to put together the film I was used to do in Czechoslovakia, very free-flowing observation of life and quirks in life about certain kind of people. And uh, I was lucky again, very lucky, because it was the time when Easy Rider was just released, film which nobody wanted to really finance, which was made for peanuts and made millions. So Universal decided that they will have a division of a film if a director will make it under $1 million, so they will let him to have a free hand on everything. Just, I'll give you $1 million and you'll bring me the film finished. No question asked. So that was great. That's how my first film, this film taking off, was being developed. Although when I came here, it was more or less uh, official to make the film with then um, Paramount, you know, and uh, I had a sort of chance still to go back if the film is successful. Because communists, uh, you know, as, as much as they publicly declared Western culture decadent and dying, they loved nothing more than the success in the capitalist world. You know, so I knew that if I had a success, I could go back, you know. But of course, taking off was a flop. So I, I couldn't go, you know, back. I would be, because nothing they hate more than somebody who tries, you know, to represent socialism or communism and flop. That's, that's a shame on them, you know. So that would be very painful. But the guilt really is responsible for my happiness to be here mm. because when I and I did the first taking off I, I had an H1 visa but they expire and you have to go you know away but I couldn't go back to Czechoslovakia because you know, fireman's ball was banned forever there so I applied for the green card so uh, the guild asked uh, the immigration office asked guild you know, what's the labor situation? And the lawyers at the guild told the truth. The situation, labor situation is bad. We have hundreds of directors uh, who are unemployed. So, you know, I still wanted to get a green card. And then <laughs> they, they called me in the immigration office. And uh, the officer there told me, we are not going to give you a green card because you lied. What did I lie? Well, here you put that you were never a member of Communist Party. So I said, you know more than I do. I was never a member of any political party, least of them Communist Party. Sorry. And I was, then, you know, what happened was, Buck Henry, with whom I worked, 
they, they're taking off. He, without me asking him to do that, he talked to my colleagues here, American directors and you know, filmmakers, and Mike Nichols, Bug Henry, of course, Paddy Chayefsky, Franklin Schaeffer, and I believe Sidney Lumet. You know, they wrote to the guild to reconsider their you know, answer to the immigration office. So, what happened? I was six weeks before deportation back to Czechoslovakia. But they, you know, based on this uh, action by guilt, they postponed uh, the decision, the final decision. The irony is that about six months later, the same officer at the immigration office called me back and told me, uh, Mr. Foreman, I am glad to tell you, you were never a member of Communist Party. <laughs> and I understood what happened, you know, because they have, you know, State Department, they have their informants in communist countries, right? Not knowing that most of those, what they believed were trustworthy informants for them, were working for the secret police there, you know. And, you know, the government there, didn't want, didn't want me to stay here, so they sent that disinformation. I will be denied citizenship. That was a green card, you know. So uh, they will send me back, you know, into their hands. <laughs> so also, yeah. so that's uh, I owe guilt, you know, basically my career. That's great. Was it uh, emotionally abrupt to leave Czechoslovakia? What was that? Oh, well, you know, it's, uh, yes, it emotionally because you are suddenly away. So, uh, the moment I decided, you know, to stay here and not go back. So, of course, you know, you, uh, realize you will probably never see, you know, places, you know, from childhood again, your friends again. Now I had my, you know, the two kids, you know, there. Will I see them again? We are not. But, you know, it's once you start to work, suddenly, you know, there is some kind of a safety mechanism in your brain which blocks off all these disturbing uh, things. And, uh, you know, you just concentrate on what you have to do. And then you come home in the evenings after working, then you feel a little sad. What are the elements you look for in a story? Two things. Two things I would say. First of all, it has to excite you on both levels, emotional and intellectual. It has to intrigue you. And second thing, there are a lot of, you know, life experiences or literature or plays like that. So the second thing, it has to have a hook, which is sometimes, you know, Negligible. It's uh, or unimportant should be unimportant. For example, hair. The hook were songs, tunes. I was just thrilled. My emotional and intellectual, you know, attachment was already there, of course, because uh, emotionally, you know, the feeling of, especially for somebody coming from communist country, 
where you can't talk about anything important, you know, which doesn't conform with political correctness, you know, is no-no. And here, you know, this freedom of this uh, piece was just uh, mind-boggling for me. Although, and which is a big paradox, because in that times, it's a, it's a basically anti-war, anti-Vietnam war piece there. For me, in the times, anybody who fought communists was my hero. So American army was my hero fighting in Vietnam. But this musical head was my hero expressing the freedom that you can talk about these things and you can talk about them freely. You know, so that was, uh, that was the hook. That was the hook, the songs, the, you know, the, the tunes, you know, it was, uh, not the message. No, no, not the message, the tunes. Because usually musical have one, two, three great tunes, and the rest is just a fill. West Side Story, Cats, and Hair. Every single tune is a gem. It's wonderful, you know. And that was for me, yeah, I want to do this. You know, I don't care, message, it's all right, I am against the war, although I am for war in Vietnam to beat the communists, but okay, let's do I'll do it. Uh, it's ragtime. The hook was that one scene when uh, this fireman, you know, these rednecks, defecate, you know, put shit on the seat of the car of Kohlhaus Walker, and suddenly he's facing the dilemma to humiliate himself, himself, clean it with his own hands, or to demand that those who did it clean it. This was a hook for me, because this is what I lived in communist societies all the time. All the time where you have to swallow your pride and clean the shit they impose on you. You know? So there was the hook. Uh, Cuckoo's Nest. The, the real, that little hook. You know, I love the book. It was the brilliant piece of literature, you know, far more interesting and intelligent than I read anything else. The hook was the last scene when he, the Indian takes that big thing, you know, from the bathroom and throws it through the window and runs for the freedom, you know, because that were, these were my dreams and dreams of all young people in communist country to take that thing and throw it through the barbed wire around the country and, and, and go and see the world. So, you know, these hooks are, are very important. Well, let's move and start talking about pre-production. Once you have the script... The most important thing is casting of the film. That's absolutely crucial. Because you can, you can have a brilliant script. You can be a wonderful director, great cinematographer, wonderful music. But if the audience doesn't believe the people on the screen, all your work is in vain. So casting, because that's what translates for the audience is all your ideas, all what you were after. So casting is the crucial thing, most important in pre-production. I, uh, for Kukusnas, for example, I interviewed for all the parts, over thousand, over thousand people. You know. I knew it's it's it's, it's interesting. Because I knew that uh, I want Jack Nicholson, 
Because that whole story is about a man from the world known to us, stepping into the world unknown to us, mental institution. So I wanted that the main character will be somebody we can identify with. We know him. It's, he represents me. So that's Jack Nicholson. But I wanted everybody in that mental institution to be unknown face, the world unknown to us. So I am, you know, interviewing over a thousand people for everybody. Because the small parts to cast them right is, in my opinion, as important as casting the main characters, sometimes even more. Because the main character, he has, he has space of two hours to, you know, you know present himself and the character, you know, the story. But the, 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 the bit parts, you know, they appear for 30 seconds, two minutes, here and there. They don't have that space. So they have to be right on. The audience must not be confused. If somebody appears in the first 20 minutes of the film, then disappears for another 30 minutes and reappears, I want to know immediately. I, I don't want to be confused because he looks like some other actor and, you know, they are similarly looking and, and like that. So to cast the small parts is as important as the big parts. So what I do is, first I do interviews. Very brief, you know, five minutes for a person. Just... The most important of these interviews is physicalities. You know, person comes in the door, it's the first time I see him or her, and I immediately note, oh, this physicality could be right for this part or this part or this part. And I make a note, you know. Then I talk to them for five minutes just to have a little feel of the personality, you know, and like that. Then, you know, this narrows this thousand into, let's say, I don't know, a hundred. Then I call back those hundred individually for readings. I uh, read with them, you know, one, two, three scenes from the script. And uh, I do it always myself. It's that, you know, he or she, you know, reads one part and her you know, partner, I am reading the part. Or if it's he, I read the girl, I, you know. She, I read the guy, you know, because it somehow uh, is easier for the actor because there is not this director sitting outside and looking from outside in a cold blood and judging. I'm not that. I'm here working with the actor. I'm saying the other lines, you know. So uh, then I see, you know, what kind of understanding the actor and actress has for the content of the scenes of the character of the, of the story. That narrows it again. Then I'll do screen tests. Then I'll do screen tests, screen tests, and I know that all of these people are capable. All of these people are already, you know, in my opinion, ready to be in the movie. They're good actors for these parts. But I want to see combinations to orchestrate physicalities you know, and I want to see what kind of the, 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 which actor has a good sort of chemistry going on with the other actor or actress. You know, so uh, screenplay screen tests are important f from this point of view for me. So then, now with rehearsals, you start. Uh, do you rehearse? I mean, do you rehearse before? I don't like very much. I don't want. 
you don't want to over rehearse because that makes things uh, sort of stiff. You no, I don't rehearse very much. I do uh, before when uh, when the casting is finished. So uh, I assemble a few week or two weeks before we start shooting all the main actors and important smaller parts just sitting around the table and we just read through the script just reading through the script so that I can hear if yes they understand what they are talking about what they are saying they understand the lines they understand the scene they understand the film that I have this feeling but it's just sitting around the table because to, to you know pretend that, the, okay, you go there and imagine that there, there is a door here. It's, it's ridiculous, you know, for, for me. So that that's the only thing like that. And then I, of course, uh, rehearse uh, uh, the moment we come on the set. First, I rehearse just for myself how to block it out, you know. And, uh, but I don't like, uh, you know, the actors to repeat the same scene before we start, you know, the shooting many times, because then it becomes mechanical, you know, has a tendency to become mechanical. So, um, you know, I re want to rehearsals like that. And then when I see that it's more or less, it's still a little rough, but that's all right. Okay, let's do one more rehearsal and let's put it on film. And very often, this kind, when the, the actors feel that it's still a rehearsal, you know, Somehow they are more relaxed in in the part and in doing it than than when they know that now I have to perform, you know. So uh, and then if things you know don't or go differently than I thought they should, you know. So then you go, let's try it this way, but only briefly, and that's it for rehearsing. Because you know, I'll tell you something: good actors. They do their homework. They do a lot of homework. And sometimes, you know, yes, it's a little different than one you th what you thought, but it's good. Let's not try to impose your little different way how he should do it, because this, he is comfortable in it, and he's real, I believe it. How much are you shooting on scenes? You're shooting, you're shooting lots of film? Well, usually I shoot a lot of film because I like, wherever it's possible, to shoot at least two cameras. Oh. I like to crisscross, uh, you know, cameras, because that gives you a freedom in editing uh, very much. And, uh, and then, of course, when we are doing things, scenes like uh, shooting uh, opera scene for Amadeus, you know, where you have singers and dancers, you can't ask them to do it ten times, because after doing it five times, they are exhausted to death, you know. So you put four cameras there. So that you have a really rich coverage of a scene which you can, you know, run in front of the camera only two, three times. Let's talk about the days of shooting. The night before, the first day of shooting, you prepare in a specific way? Uh, no, not really. Uh, the only thing I always, uh, not, not, of course, before the first day of shooting, but even the other days, the only thing I prepare is the first shot. Where, where do I want the camera uh, for the first shot? Because then you have enough time to... Because I don't like... I, I, I don't do... I'm not saying that's a good way, you know, what's better or worst way. I don't like storyboards. I don't like to sit at home and now 
draw where I want the tree, where I want the car, where I want these people, and like that, and then come either on location or in the studio and now push the things around, especially on location. Yeah, 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 I don't have the cut that tree, which is there and put another tree here because it's in my storyboard. No, no, I like to do the other way around, to come with open-minded on the set or on, on the location and then uh, change uh, and, and mold, you know, my ideas into the reality which exists there. Did you always work like that, even with yeah. the first pictures, right, right up? Oh yeah, because you know the first pictures, you know, they were very, very low budget, cheap things where you have a location, and you didn't have money even to buy a painting to put on the wall. But yeah. you wouldn't storyboard, or you wouldn't have any. No, no, no. I never storyboarded. No. Do you do homework each day for the next day of the shoot at night, or are you just kind of? Oh no, no. I go through the scenes I'm going to shoot the next day. Just that. I refresh my memory because, you know, and uh, that you somehow figure out a little bit, you know, the first few shots, how you want to block them out. And when you get to work, what's your process? When you get to the day of shoot, when you show up at the set, you have a... Uh, what is very important for me to, uh, to help to create a relaxed, nice atmosphere. And... Uh, I like to make fun of myself in front of other people on the set because that somehow relaxes them and I'm not that, you know, tense, provoking, you know. Although, I must admit, you know, probably film set is the last dictatorship in civilized world. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to actors to get performances? Do you have, do you have, do you have specific words that you have? I never try to analyze theoretically and talking, you know, vaguely and about uh, the, the anal analysis of the character at this moment. Uh, what I do is probably trivial, bad. Some actors don't like it. If I hear, uh, you know, that no, that's not right how he's doing it. I take the actor aside so that I don't <laughs> humiliate him in front of other people. And I tell him, listen, you, do you know how you sound? You sound like this. Why don't you sound like that? I parody him. Huh. I parody him. I exaggerate. I exaggerate what he's doing wrong. And it works. It works. Actor, because sometimes the actor... You know, I know that he understands the part. I understand everything. But the nervosity sometimes makes him, or, you know, very often, especially when it's, you know, sort of quiet scenes, nothing much happening, they think that they are not doing enough, that they are not expressing enough what's inside them, and they start to... And I stop believing the performance. So I'm taking him aside. I parody him, over-exaggerate. How he sounds. Sometimes it works. Did you have to do that to say Nicholson and those, the, all the stars, all those? Oh, without telling them, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but one has to be very. Look, you know, it's every actor. These people are, you know, they have different personalities, and especially when it comes to actors, it's a very, very you know, sensitive area. Their own 
personalities. So we have to deal with every actor different in a different way. Um, was there ever a point? Well, let's. Well, I'm, I'm interested in what you did with with Murray Abraham, and that uh, when he was playing the old, when he was in makeup and doing all that. Um, it's very important work for the film, obviously. Did you work oh, with yeah. him in a specific way, or did you? This way, exactly this way. Same thing. Because he brought some mannerisms from the stage, because he was mainly a stage actor, you know. So, but he's very bright, very intelligent and talented man. So, very quickly he understood what I mean when I'm parodying, when I am showing him a parody of himself. You know, he immediately uh, realized that, and it was wonderful. I never. You know, I, several people told me if Murray is difficult. No? I never had the slightest problem with if Murray. Did you, in the in the pieces as you began to work in period or even that, those stage pieces, did you find that you were allowing for a slightly different style of acting? That you would allow for more theatrical acting and. No, it's everything. You know, there is no. You know, different, uh, what do you call it, for, you know, this type of acting. This. Do I believe it or do I not? That's all, that's the only criterion I have. When he says it's this way, yeah, I believe it, even if it's theatrical or whatever. Right. Yeah, I believe it. Let's go. Okay. If I don't believe it, then I try to find the other way. When you're dealing with um, music in the film, like real music in the film. How do you deal with like actors playing music? Do you like Harry First of Collins, all, Jr. and those? Um, and I I told because Tom Hulse, Tom Hulse, when I decided that he will be Mozart, he didn't play piano at all. He played a little guitar. That was it. And I told Tom, listen to him. Yes, of course, we can cheat it. You know, you'll have somebody's hands and then I cut to your face and then cut to back to the hands and it's somebody else's hands. But I, I would rather not do that. It would be wonderful if you can play it. That man, Tom Hulse, spent six hours a day for six months practicing the exact passages, you know, huh. I had for the film. And it was amazing because when I showed the final film, so that I can, you know, be on the hands, and then I go up from the hands, and it's him. Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's Tom Hulse playing this music, uh-huh. or vice versa. Uh-huh. It's wonderful. So, and when I showed the final film to Sir Neville Mariner, who conducted the whole score, he couldn't believe it. He said, listen, that guy doesn't hit one wrong key in the whole movie. Wow. How about the scene with him uh, and uh, and uh, the beautiful scene where he's telling him he's asking Salieri to write down his. Uh, that comedy. was, you know, uh, that was a big breakthrough when we were working on the script with Peter Schaeffer to find out because Peter Schaeffer till today he is not happy with the ending of the stage play. He never has the enough power, you know. huh. and when you know. I found out that yes, music can be dictated. And we started to write a scene that suddenly opened for us. This is the end of the film. This is, this is the power of it. Was done very meticulously with the actors. They had a little 
uh, speaker, you know, in the air, in, in, in the ear. And, uh, he says, like, for example, you know, D minor, the common time. Okay. And in this moment, the sound engineer puts, uh, turns on the record, uh, the tape player. And the actor hears it, so he can say, okay? Da, dee, da, 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 dee, da. Because you couldn't play it aloud so that he can hear it. Because then you wouldn't have the dialogue clear. So dialogue is clear. Now, yes, yes, yes. And now, so he can talk and sync in sync with the music which was already recorded because he has it in his ear. You know, it was very, very delicate. But it worked beautifully. You know. How did you pick that piece of music? The, the, all the pieces of music were uh, chosen by me and Peter Schaeffer during the working on the script. Uh-huh. All the pieces. Because they existed. I played tons of uh, records of Mozart's music, you know, and Peter Schaeffer originally started as a, when he was a young man in Liverpool. He was a music uh, reviewer. He wrote criticism of music for the local newspapers, you know. So he had a great knowledge about music, much bigger than mine. And I had to, uh, the only fight I had with Peter Schaffer was that he was insisting to using this kind of, this part of music, this part of this, this part of this music. And I said, listen, Peter, you know, this is obviously exciting your ears which are so knowledgeable about music that for you it's just brilliant. For, for me, who doesn't know the music so much, I would like to go da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da because I understand and I love it. And not this sophisticated kind of part of that composition, you know. So then finally we agreed on all the pieces of music we want to use so that they please me as a ignorant about music and excite me and our nice sounding for my ears and also, you know, his demands for sophisticated perfection was satisfied. Thank you for listening to highlights of this visual history interview of Milos Forman. On our website, you can watch the entire interview and hear Mr. Forman discuss the later portion of his career and how he approached making the films Man on the Moon and The People vs. Larry Flint. You can also explore the entire public collection of our visual history program. So check it all out at dga.org slash crafts slash visual history. If you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And if you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. We hope you hear from us soon. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.